We're in a series of looking at four pictures of Jesus as we prepare for the celebration of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ in Easter week. And what is amazing about each of the texts that we'll be looking at is it, it shows how the history of the entire Old Testament is interwoven and connected and all points to one person, Jesus Christ, in this complex and incredibly artistic, sophisticated manner that, that makes the Bible an amazing piece of literature on its own merit. When I, my kids were younger, I, Denise and I read through the Lord of the Rings trilogy for my kids when they were fairly young, and I, I must admit, I'm, I'm embarrassed to admit this, but I had a difficult time, maybe it was because we read it close to bedtime and I was tired. Parenting is difficult. I just had a difficult time keeping up with the complexity and multiplicity of this plots, the subplots, the geography of Middle Earth. It was lost on me. I read words, but didn't really understand it. But not so my daughter. Oh, no. She knew everything. She loved to participate in Lord of the Rings trivia you know, matches. She learned Elvish, apparently. She actually wanted to translate John 3 into Elvish and wanted me and her to, to hand this out to people as they came to each of the three movies in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And I didn't know what to think of that. On the one hand, should I be proud of my daughter because she had a passion for the Elvish-speaking peoples of the world? Or should I be concerned? A few years ago, at my daughter's urging, I reread the trilogy and began to appreciate, I think, a little bit more the genius of Tolkien. But nothing, nothing, however, compares to the intricate threading of narratives, plots, geography, characters in the Bible as they weave together this incredible tapestry of stories and uh, uh, geography and recapitulations that all find their fulfillment in this one person, Jesus Christ. It's amazing. So today, as we continue our series on the pictures of Jesus, we're going to be looking at the temptation of Jesus, Matthew 4. And what's vitally important for us to fully understand what's going on in the temptation of Jesus, the text we just read, is we must connect it to the baptism story from, from last week. Matthew 3, uh, 13 to, to, through 17, is, is connected in, intimately with the, the temptation of Jesus. These narratives are together for a purpose because they reinforce one another and in some sense interpret one another. We read in Matthew 4, 1. This is right after the baptism. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. There's a connection. That word then could actually be translated thus. You see the baptisms, therefore, are thus now that temptations will help you understand even more of what the baptism was all about. 
If you go to Mark's gospel where the temptation, the baptism and temptation is mentioned, in Mark 1, 9 through 11, describes the baptism of Jesus. And then in verse 12, it says, the spirit immediately drove Jesus out into the wilderness. These two events are directly connected. In some sense, you can't either understand either one without understanding both of them together and how they connect. So just to recap last week. In Jesus' baptism, we saw that Jesus was attested by Father God to be the Son, the Son in whom he was well pleased. Now what's interesting, when you see all these intricate themes throughout the Bible, Israel itself was called God's Son in Exodus 4.22. The Son language was also used by God to denote the Davidic kings of Israel. The Messiah was described in the Old Testament as being the Son of David. So the language of the Son denotes not only the Son of David, but indicates that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. But also at the baptism, when John the Baptist interfaces with Jesus, Jesus said, I need to be baptized by you, John, to fulfill all righteousness. Meaning that as the Son, the Son of David, the Son of God, who you would expect to be the one who would baptize John... Jesus says, no, John, we need to fulfill all righteousness by, by baptizing me. Why? Because Jesus, even as the Son of God, even as the Son of David, he would identify with sinful people ultimately in his death. And being baptized in this baptism that was for, uh, for, was for the confession and, and repentance, Jesus didn't need to confess, but he is identifying before his death, in baptism, showing that he would be the one who would take on the sin of Israel, the sin of the world, your sin and my sin, for us in our place. And of course, that demonstrates that Jesus is also the fulfillment of the prophecies concerning the suffering servant. We saw last week that Isaiah 42 talks about the suffering servant. Isaiah 53 talks about the suffering servant. And how the Spirit of God would be put on this suffering servant who would then redeem the world and bring the world back under the lordship of himself and Father God. I could go on and on about this. We need to get somewhere eventually here, but two more paragraphs. What's amazing about the passage is that it shows the incredible artistry and complexity of God's word. It's interesting when you see Jesus in the waters of the Jordan River, you're reminded that Israel, God's son, went through the waters of the Red Sea. And almost immediately after they went through the Red Sea, this triumphant redemption from the bondage of Egypt, where did God take them next? Into the wilderness. In a similar way, the son, the son of David, the Son of God, in whom God was well pleased with, is in the waters of the Jordan, identifying with his people, identifying with his sinful people, identifying with us, and then immediately is put out into the wilderness, showing that in a very real sense, Jesus is recapitulating the history of Israel. He's also fulfilling the history of Israel. And in a very real sense, he is setting the course for God's people, the church today, through that pattern. 
of being attested as the son of God, but also the suffering servant. Now, spoiler alert. I know you've already read the passage. You've heard the passage read. What Adam and Eve failed to do in the garden, interesting, there was a temptation about food in that garden. What Israel failed to do as God's son, what every son of David, every king of Israel failed to do, including David, but all of the sons of David after him. And in some sense, what we failed to do, Jesus Christ in this wilderness will do what no one else could do to withstand the temptations of the evil one so that he, the son of God and the suffering servant could die in our place and redeem the world from its sin. Amen? So let's get into the text here. We want to make three very important connections. And these connections will work in a couple of different ways. On the one hand, we want to connect the baptism and the temptation together so that we get a deeper understanding of who Jesus is and what he came to do. But I think it's also important that we gain an understanding of what happened to Jesus, how Satan uh, tempted Jesus to get some understanding for us as we face our own temptations, as we face our own wilderness experiences, how we can, through Jesus, be victorious with the temptations that come our way. So let's look at the first connection. Go to Matthew 4.1. It says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit of God in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. It's interesting that the Spirit of God is the one who leads Jesus into the wilderness. And I would say the first connection we need to make here is that the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness, and the Spirit may very well lead you into the wilderness. This is the first connection. We know that the Spirit was involved in the very conception of Jesus in, in the womb of his mother Mary. We know that the suffering servant, particularly the passage in Isaiah 42, says that God will put his Spirit on the suffering servant. And in Jesus' baptism, in the form of the dove, the Spirit of God, in some sense, sort of pictured there, descends on Jesus to empower him to do this ministry of redeeming the world through his death. So in the baptism of Jesus, it's the spirit, it's the empowerment for Jesus. It's, it's, it, it's also connected with the, the words of affirmation from God the Father. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. It's pretty positive. And then that same spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tested by the devil. This mirrors Israel's history. They were redeemed out of the Red Sea and then into the wilderness triumphal and victorious Israel, freed from the bondage of Egypt, and then right into the wilderness they are led into to be tested. The pattern for Israel has become the pattern for Israel's son and suffering servant, and I would say it's our pattern as well as God's people, the church. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, when God brings us, and God has to do it, to brings us to where we, by the Spirit, understand who Jesus is, and we understand our sin for what it is, and he leads us to put our faith and confidence in Christ alone, it's an incredible, supernatural experience of new birth. We become united in a very real way to the death, burial of Jesus Christ. 
The Spirit of God accomplishes this, but it's also the same Spirit who may lead us into the wilderness. Remember what Romans 8, 16, and 17 says. It says this, Paul writes, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That's positive. The Spirit gives us this new identity as children of God. And he goes on, it's better than being children, and of children than heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. How incredible is that? And then Paul ruins the text. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And I think one of the mis the ways we don't connect the life of Jesus to our life, the life of Israel to our life, is because we're all into the fact that the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and we're heirs, and we're fellow heirs with Christ. That's amazing. But now it says, in, <laughs> in order that we may suffer with him, in order that we may be glorified. We don't like that part. Are you ready for the wilderness? Maybe some of you are in the wilderness right now. And one of your temptations will be, as we'll see, is when you're in the wilderness, it's going to be very, very difficult for you to hold on to the fact that you're a child of God. You're an heir of God. You're a, you're a co-heir with Christ in the suffering. But that's the way it works. Jesus did not come and suffer and die so that we would never suffer and die. No, he came and suffered and died so that when we suffer as we follow Christ, we will become more like Christ even as we await the future glory that is ours. So the first connection is absolutely critical. I think sometimes, so many times in my sort of working with people and working with myself, is I find that believers are not prepared spiritually, emotionally, or psychologically for the fact that the Christian life isn't this glory, from glory to glory, from child to heir to glory. We forget about the suffering part. And I suspect there may be some of you either online or here this morning, you're checking out Christianity. I, I just want to be very honest with you. Don't come to Christ to think that your life is going to be, go from joy to joy forever, you know, forever, yes. Today, not so much. Because the pattern for God's people, whether that was Israel, whether that's Jesus, whether it's the church, is the same spirit who adopts you into the family of God is the same spirit who will drive you out into the wilderness. That's the first connection. Let's make the second connection. In the second connection, I want to look very directly at the three temptations that Jesus undergoes by Satan. Now, I, I think there are three certainly separate um, temptations, although I think all of them have one overriding purpose. So let's look at these temptations, and in doing so, I think we can discover who Jesus is and what he's come to do. Verse 2, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. In the first temptation, Jesus says, if you are the son of God, and you need to understand the original here. The question is not actually a question like we would think. It's not Jesus is saying, if you are the son of God, maybe you are, maybe you're not. 
That's one way the Greek can, can, can detail a question. Another way for the, the Greek to detail a question, if you are the son of God, and certainly you're not, but the, the, the way the Greek is constructed, what, what Satan is actually saying, if you are the son of God, and I would say, and we both know you are, So Satan recognizes the Son of God. And, and this isn't, shouldn't be surprising because when you read the accounts in the Gospels, you'll have all kinds of demons who understand who Jesus is, or at least they seem to. They do a better job of understanding Jesus than humans, even though they don't believe in him. So he says, if you are the Son of God, why don't you take these stones and make loaves of bread in order to quench the hunger? I mean, for... Jesus is in the middle of a 40-day fast. He's hungry. Now, on the surface, this seems like a reasonable thought, actually. I mean, you, you look at this. What kind of a temptation is this? There's no temptation, really, to evil that's obvious. You're hungry. You're the son of God. Food is good. It's a gift of God. You're hungry. Use your power as the son of God to alleviate your deprivation. But that's where the problem is. While Jesus has the power to do this, and it's legitimate to eat, the identity of Jesus as the Son of God was also coupled with his identity as the suffering servant. He had come not to assert his rightful power, even though he was the Son of God. He came to submit to his Father's plan and to lay down his life in weakness to rescue us from our sin. As the same gospel writer records in Matthew 20, 28, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. What may not be obvious at first glance is that when Jesus is tempted in this first temptation, if he can get Jesus to take a shortcut to alleviate his deprivation, He's on the road to short-circuiting Jesus' living out of his identity as the suffering servant. If he can use this temptation to get Jesus to alleviate his deprivation, to act independently of Father God, he can dislodge Jesus from the ultimate deprivation that Jesus has come to do, which is to empty himself of his independent use of his, of his godness, to lay down his life for our sin, to take our sin upon himself, to suffer the, the incredible uh, psychological, spiritual, emotional deprivation of being separated from his father God when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What Jesus, I think, is trying to do is see if he can get Jesus to take a shortcut from suffering. Short circuit Jesus' ministry using his power as the son of God to serve himself rather than to serve others, which is why he had come. Jesus had come to take the place of sinful people and that will involve massive amounts of physical, but worse, the spiritual and emotional suffering of what that would mean for him. Now notice what Jesus does with this temptation from Deuteronomy 8. Jesus responds to this temptation. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In Deuteronomy 8, uh, uh, we, we, God reminds Israel, God's people, that he had provided manna for them to eat. That, that God had allowed them to be hungry so that God's people would know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. 
God was concerned in Deuteronomy that God's people would forget who he was, that they would fail to see his provision and fail to trust him even as they were in deprivation. And Jesus refuses to use his position as the son of God to alleviate deprivation because he had come to be deprived, to suffer, to take our sins. He had come to do the will of his father. And to do the will of his father If it meant deprivation, he was willing to experience that because he was clear that he was the suffering servant who needed to come to die for the sins of the world. In John 4, Jesus says, my food is to do the will of God. Remember what he said in the garden as he's struggling with getting ready to take on our sins. What did he say? Not my will, but yours be done. Well, Satan tries again in verse 5. The devil took him up to the the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. (coughs) It's interesting. It's the same kind of formula. If you are the son of God, and we both know that you are. And then the shocking thing is Satan quotes scripture. Think about that for a minute. Satan knows scripture. He's quoting it, and the quote is good. It's from Psalm 91. He says, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bury you up unless you strike your foot against a stone. Again, you see the second temptation. This is a Psalm uh, Psalm 91. is a great psalm that talks about how God will provide and care for his people. But what Satan does is twist the scripture. He quotes it accurately, but he twists it. He misinterprets it. He then begins to say to Jesus, why don't you take God's provision and care that he offers, and why don't you twist it, Jesus, because you're the son of God, and twist it into demanding that God supernaturally rescue you in order to provide a personal advantageous situation for you, Jesus. In other words... If you get up on the temple, I mean, I mean, I've thought about this. Maybe if I, if I got up on the top of the, you know, top of Stone Hill, you all were out there in the parking lot, and said, watch me, people, and I'd jump off, and then I'm caught supernaturally. Fewer of you would sleep in the next sermon that I preached. After the fifth or sixth one, you'd be back to your old ways, I know. It would be a miraculous sign. Again, I think it it is a a different temptation, but it's the same temptation. It's trying to say, Jesus, don't think of yourself as the suffering servant who's come to pour out your life. Take scripture, twist it, use it for your own personal advantage, and then demand that God supernaturally rescue you from the situation that you create, which is really not what Psalm 91 is about. It's about when you're in a difficult situation, God will be there. It's not about I will personally put myself in a bad situation and then demand that you bail me out so that everyone can see that you are really who you are. You really are the son of God. And what is it trying to do? I think it's trying to get Jesus to avoid the cross. It's a shortcut. And it involves a selfish personalization of looking at God's word, reinterpreting it for personal advantage to twist it. And what does Jesus say to that? 
Jesus, verse 7, again, he quotes scripture. Again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. In other words, it is not appropriate for us to take scripture, turn it into a personal advantageous thing for him, so we rip it out of context. Then we initiate action and then demand that God supernaturally bail us out so that we are validated. You don't put the Lord your God to the test like that. One more temptation. It says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Now, what's interesting, again, about what Satan is doing, that God's plan through the suffering servant, through the son, the son of David, is that the kingdom of God would come and rule all of the kingdoms. That Jesus would be ruling and reigning over all the kingdoms. Satan is appealing to what the, the ultimate plan is supposed to look like. Paul himself in Ephesians 1 said that Jesus would be seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in the age, this, this age, but also in the age to come. This is the destiny of Jesus, the Son, the suffering servant. But what Satan is offering here is again to short-circuit the cross. Just worship me, Jesus. You don't have to deal with the cross. You don't have to die for these sinful people. You don't have to suffer being separated from Father God. Worship me and I will give you and the plan can be fulfilled. And Jesus responds again with scripture. Be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Jesus Christ is not willing to short-circuit the cross he will do what his father wanted him to do. He will fulfill his father's will. He will accomplish in his own identity. He's the son of God, but he's the suffering servant. He will not lose sight of who he is and what he's come to do. And he will not take any effort by twisting scripture or by making stones come to bread or by short-circuiting the cross. He is willing to go all the way to the cross for us. And I think what helps me to tie all of this together is in this same gospel, we won't turn there, in Matthew 16, Jesus tells his disciples, I have to suffer and I'm going to have to die. And what does Peter say? This will never happen to you, Peter says. And then Jesus looks at Peter, who just had figured out that Jesus was the Son of God a few verses earlier, and says, get behind me, Satan, for you do not have the things of God in mind, you have the things of men. I think this sort of helps us look at, yes, there are three different temptations, but all of the temptations have the same purpose, to try to get the suffering servant, son of David, the son of God, to try to redeem the world in some other way than going all the way to the cross for us. And that's the second connection. Just believably, the third connection before we celebrate communion. I do want to just briefly connect how Jesus' temptations connects us to our present struggle and our spiritual battles. Very briefly, let me give you three of these. 
three ways to connect. Number one, we said it before, the same spirit who adopts you into God's family, the same spirit that bears witness with your spirit that you were a child of God, you're an heir, you're a fellow heir with Christ, is the same spirit who's going to drive you into the wilderness. Get ready for that. Don't be shocked. Don't be surprised. Second thing, Satan's temptations, I think, in his temptation of Jesus is mostly about twisting the identity of Jesus or altering the identity of Jesus. If you are the son of God, then do this, not sort of undermining his suffering servant identity. And my fear a little bit with any kind of talk about spiritual warfare is, and and, and you don't need to confess these sins to me, but some of us have watched way too many Hollywood depictions of satanic activity. And if you want to go to the prayer team after the service and confess those movies and do that. But, but you have all this paranormal stuff and all these wacky things that are happening. And you think that's where the real spiritual battle is. I don't think so. I'm not saying some of that stuff doesn't happen. And believe me, I've had believers who live in other parts of the world who will share some hair-raising stories of what happens in spiritual warfare. But a lot of what you see with Jesus is simply Satan attempting to undermine who Jesus is and what he's supposed to do, even using scripture to do that. And he will do the very same thing to you. What Satan wants to get you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, is to doubt who you are in Christ. Is to get you to, 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 to doubt God in the midst of your own deprivation. Well, if, God, if I was a child of God, this couldn't be happening to me. No, he takes you to the wilderness. He wants you to question your identity. He wants to get you to try to earn your identity with God rather than depend upon Christ. He wants to make you feel that your identity is compromised because you failed recently or to get you to question your identity because your circumstances are going poorly. I remember uh, very vividly my first full year at Stonehill Westerly Road Church. It's 1989. The car had just been invented. No, that's not true. I was a youth pastor, Stonehill, Westerly, that's what I was doing. The youth group is less than 10 people every Friday night. They didn't like each other. They didn't know each other. I don't think they liked me, and I didn't really like them. Sometimes we'd have four people on a Friday night. It's weird to play a game with four people. All right, let's break up into teams. Let's have a tug-of-war match. This is awful. I did everything. I tried to stand on my head. I I, I played games. I invented games. I I did everything I could to get some life out of that. And it, it just wasn't going anywhere. It was terrible. I left town twice at the end of the first year. Uh, this very difficult year and I got so physically sick the minute I got into Pennsylvania and it wasn't Pennsylvania's fault just getting away from the stress I had put myself under my digestive system went nuts and I just my vacations were ruined I was in the hotel room in Lancaster moaning it was so bad I went to a gastroenterologist checked me out listen to my story. I thought I had some horrible disease. He looked at me and said, well, you know, 
You know those little talks you give those students on Friday nights? You know, if you would believe those a little more, I think you'll be just fine. This is stress-induced. Crawled out under the... Crawled out. remember talking to some people. It's kind of embarrassing, you know, come home, you know, hey, honey, how'd the doctor go? He just says, basically, I'm not a Christian. <laughs> and it reminds me of the wife of Martin Luther. Martin Luther, um, great reformer in Germany, 1500s or so, he, he was prone to depression. And one day he left the house and was on this trying to gin up, get out of his depression. And when he came home, his entire family, his wife, and all of his children were sitting in the living room there of their home, and they were all dressed in black. Martin Luther says, oh no, who died? And his wife looked at him and said, God has died, Martin. That's how you're acting. You don't believe God is alive, so we're having a funeral for God today. Martin Luther was rightly convicted because he's not taking the word of God and applying it to his life. I wasn't doing the same thing either. And so I ended up in this project, and I ended up writing down every single thing that was true of me because of Christ. And so for a year after that conviction of sin that I got at the gastroenterologist, I would go into the youth room, the old musty, moldy youth room back in the old building, and I would recite, recite these kinds of things. I would say, I am God's child by the grace of God. That's who I am. I am united with the Lord and I am one with him in spirit. I've been bought with a price and I belong to God. I'm a member of Christ's body. I've been chosen by God and adopted by his child. I am free from condemnation. I've been established, anointed, and sealed by God. I am hidden with Christ in God. I would yell these things in the youth room like a crazy person. I would say, I am God's temple. The Spirit of God lives inside me. I am God's workmanship. I am being approached God with freedom comes. I had a list of these things, and I would yell them out in that youth room. And you know what? I started to believe them a little more. The second year at Westerly Road, the youth group was no better. Worse. But I was different. Why? Because I had begun to believe, I think, the lies of the evil one who tried to tell me, you're not a good pastor, you're not even a good Christian. Look at the youth group. If you really were God's child, could anything be as bad as this? I had to get my eyes back on the word of God and back on who I am in Jesus Christ. I'm going to take some of the lists that I came up with. I'll put it on the website this week. Some of you need to get it, and you need, that's all you need to do this week is just recite those things and start to believe them. Because that is how you do spiritual battle with the enemy. It's not some, you know, usually paranoid, normal stuff. It's simply taking the word of God, believing it, and apply it to the temptations that he throws your way. And that leads us to communion. On the night our Lord was betrayed, he took bread, he blessed it, he passed it to his disciples, and we're going to do the same. I want you to bow your heads right now and spend some, just a, a few seconds in 
confession. I suspect that probably all of us, those of us who know Christ, and we want to invite anyone who's put their faith and confidence in Christ alone to partake with us. But I suspect there's a number of you who have failed to believe fully who you are in Christ this week. You've, you've made your identity in something else. Something other than Christ. You've tried to perform to get God to love you. You, you, you. You've lost sight of the fact that you're forgiven because you, maybe you failed in some areas this week. Take some time and confess the ways in which you have failed to affirm and believe under pressure who you really are in Christ. Let's bow together and confess privately. Lord Jesus, I suspect that every one of us here, those who know Christ, we have been tempted to doubt your care for us because of the deprivations we may be experiencing. We, and forgive us for that, Lord. Lord, I think for all of us who know Christ, it's, it's easy for us to doubt our position as God's child or, or, as, or as an heir of God or a fellow heir with Christ. Because either we have stumbled into sin and we can't believe the promises of God or maybe we're experiencing life in the wilderness and we somehow feel that God is angry with us when actually he's led us to the place of deprivation to teach us. But forgive us for not rooting our identity in Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. Lord, I also confess that uh, for many of us who know you as Savior, Lord, it's easy for us to build our identity on, on anything but you, Lord, whether that's a career, a relationship, whether that's family, money, simple experiences, pleasure. Forgive us, Lord, for not rooting our identity in you alone plus nothing. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your forgiveness. And by your spirit, help us to see you again as we partake of your table together. In Jesus' name, amen.